Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, the Deputy Editor of Financial Advisor. Today, we have a slightly different format to the usual discussion that we have. Uh, Our guest today is Anna Whitelock, Policy Manager at the Financial Ombudsman Service, who has bravely agreed to answer some questions which have been posed by you, our readers and listeners. Hello, Anna. Hello, Damien. And you are you, you, part of your job uh, is sort of speaking to advisors semi-regularly. I, I it is, yes. I, I work on the regional engagement that we uh, we do around the country, and and a lot of that is speaking to financial advice. Cool, uh, people. Stuff. So, uh, without further ado, I guess we might as well dive in. Uh, the first one that we got in that we're going to address is came to us from Twitter. Uh, why are the ombudsman staff not required to be qualified to the same uh, level as financial advisors? Uh, because these these are the these are the people whose uh, decisions they're judging? What we do at the Ombudsman is, um, so an investigator or or an Ombudsman um, have to look into what is fair and reasonable and so what they're the nature of their job with um, any kind of complaint, but uh, even with, with anything to do with financial advice, will be to, first of all, identify what the complaint is. Then they have to work out whether or not the business has acted fairly and reasonably. And if it hasn't, or if we if we find that they haven't, then try to put that uh, right for those individuals. So those skills and um, uh, the kinds of things that they would have to, to know uh, and be good at are slightly different from that of a financial advisor. So what I would say is that anybody who is looking at a case would have access to a wide uh, range of different tools. So we have uh, um, a means by which they can access knowledge and um, various different bits of information. So if they were struggling with a a technical issue, uh, sometimes we can see cases about advice which might involve uh, specialised products or services and then they'd be able to get hold of that information. But we also have practice groups. So these are experts within the Ombudsman Service um, who would be able to, again, advise and um, share their knowledge and expertise in specific areas on on either technical issues or our approach. A lot of my colleagues um, will have come from various different areas within the industry. So we already have in the uh, Ombudsman Service people who may have been financial advisors, people who may have worked for product providers, they may have worked in the pensions and investment industry or in the mortgage advice industry or come from various different areas within financial services which would be connected to advice. So we already have, a, if you like, an in-house network of, of experts. Um, but we would also, uh, if we think we need uh, outside help, we would call on that. So for example, uh, last year we held a pension symposium where we invited people from the industry to come and talk to us about uh, what's happening in, in the industry right now, what might potentially happen in the future, so that we can understand more fully um, the, the, the picture within which the individual complaints sit. We would also uh, offer the opportunity for any of the casework uh, staff who, who want it to do professional qualifications, and those would include the kinds of qualifications that advisors do. Mm-hmm. And do, do many uh, ombudsman adjudicators do that? Yes, many of them do, especially, uh, I, I would say, in the investments and pension space, because um, those can be uh, fairly uh, niche products and areas, and, and some of the regulation around that is particular to that area. And so they will focus on that if they if they want to develop their, that as their expertise. Oh, okay. Um, do, you, do you understand why, why sometimes advisors might sort of think, oh, who is this person to judge the, the, the advice that I give? 
Of course, yes. As I said, I, I speak to advisors regularly, and I and I do appreciate that there's they um, are worried that uh, the the person they're speaking to isn't as qualified as them to give advice. Um, now that's true, but but the people that they're speaking to are are supposed to be resolving complaints. We are a dispute resolution service, so we want to be expert in resolving complaints and trying to find a resolution, um, as opposed to becoming professional advisors. Um, but I, but I would like to reassure anybody listening that we would make sure that anybody dealing with a case about financial advice would have access to all the information they need to be able to resolve that case. Uh, our next question comes again over Twitter. Um, and uh, they want to know um, why is it that the um, Financial Ombudsman Service doesn't calculate a risk-based levy? I, I understand from that question that it might be related to our funding, so the mm. way the service is funded. Yeah, that was my understanding. It's a, Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, because we don't actually charge a premium. Yeah. Um, that's not how we're funded. But it is a, a particularly timely question because at the moment we have a consultation on our future funding open. Mm. So um, if advisors are interested and would like a say um, or and, and we would appreciate their feedback and, and their input into how any changes to our funding structure might uh, affect them. Uh, what I would say on the risk-based side of things is that um, there, there is, uh, I don't know to what extent people are familiar with uh, the way we're currently funded, but there is a risk-based element, um, but the risk is to do with whether or not a business will be more likely to bring complaints to us. Mm. So that would be based on the case fees. So we are funded for the vast majority by case fees at the moment, but we also receive uh, a much smaller amount of money from the uh, levy which the FCA would calculate and then collect. So if a company generates a bucket load of complaints, then they will buy... Of course, pay more. They would pay more in, in case fees, yes. What we see on the financial advice side of things is is very, very, very few complaints. I think it was less than a half a percent uh, for the last financial year of our complaints came from financial advisors. Um, and when I'm out and about, again, my experience is that the vast majority of businesses that I speak to um, have never had a complaint at all about their service, let alone one that's come to to the ombudsman. Um, and there are a number of uh, free cases that we would offer smaller businesses. So the vast majority of financial advisors, independent financial advisors, probably wouldn't ever pay a case fee. But I, I would, as, as I've mentioned, we have a consultation open. We also consult on our plans and budget, and that, that is um, what we consider to be uh, what we would need to fund the service for the following year. We do that every year in December. So um, this year, uh, advisors will have two opportunities to let mm. us know how they feel about the way we're funded and, and, and have their say. The, the current consultation will close on the 13th of August if people wanted to get a response to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, often when people talk about risk-based uh, levies, they talk about the um, financial services compensation scheme, the idea that advisors who recommend really hairy-scary products should pay more towards um, the regulatory system. Uh, is that the sort of thing that you would consider? So it's not something we're consulting on at the moment. And um, I, I imagine that that would be the FCA's remit. So that would be something that they would have to consider as opposed to uh, what we would think about in terms of risk for a financial advice uh, business in if you think about it, we're looking at the risk of us having to deal with lots of complaints. We wouldn't necessarily look at um, 
the, the, the prudential risk that mm. that particular business would pose because that's obviously a, the regulator's area of expertise. It's what they do. And one of the um, proposals that you've put forward in the consultation is that you want to change the, the way you're funded from being 85% from case fees and 15% from the levy and you want it to be 50-50. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about what the, what the rationale for that is. Yes, we um, when we were looking at rebalancing the levy, um, we had it in mind, and and th- this goes for the uh, the reasoning behind the entire consultation and the consultation process. Uh, this this is really the culmination of a series of conversations that we've been having over the past couple of years with various different stakeholders um, in the industry about how we can find a sustainable model for the Ombudsman Services funding um, with the end of PPI. So as you know, there's a PPI deadline uh, coming up in August. And so we're planning for a service which at the moment, half of our cases uh, are PPI complaints. Um, So we're planning for a service where PPI is no longer uh, an issue. And so we have to think about um, how that's going to impact on the service. And we uh, have explained in the consultation how we think rebalancing uh, the levy and case fee proportions is going to enable us to do that. And do you think that the, the change in proportion is going to have any effect on the advice community, the amount they pay? Um, I, I don't. I don't know, and this is probably why we're doing our consultation mm. at the moment. Is we want to take on board feedback from the industry, mm. and not only the financial advice industry, but uh, anybody who might be connected with the financial industry uh, and the financial services, um, who can help us then understand fully what the impact will be on businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our third question, I'm going to have to get into a little bit of legalese uh, because they have a question that relates to uh, the FCA's rules. At the moment, the Ombudsman cannot consider a complaint if it was referred to the Financial Ombudsman Service uh, more than six years after the event complained of or if three years from the date on which the complainant became aware ought reasonably to have become aware that he or she had cause for complaint. Now, the the, the third question that we have... Um, wants to know what it is that you deem to consider awareness or ought to have been aware. Their argument is that this is quite vague, sort of constructed in a way to make it as vague as possible so that as many people can complain as possible. Okay. From that question. Uh, I would probably start with saying that the FCA draft the dispute resolution mm. rules and and I applaud you on uh, being able to read it out as articulately <laughs> as you did. Don't ask um, me to do it again. <laughs> I won't. Um, But when we are looking into uh, whether or not a complaint is within our jurisdiction, which is, of course, the very first thing we would consider even before we'd look into the merits of a complaint, because we have to be certain that we do have the powers to consider uh, a specific complaint, the time limits jurisdiction, which is the one that you were Mm -hmm. mentioning, um, is is something that we would take into account. Um, now, uh, as you've uh, read out um, quite eloquently, you've got uh, six years. So this would be from when the event or the issue that they are complaining about occurred. Um, and when we think that's possible, if we're talking about older complaints, which I imagine is what this particular advisor is concerned about, um, and the six years have passed, then this three-year rule mm. uh, kicks in, which is when we're looking to when a consumer would have become reasonably aware that they had cause to complain. We would look 
at this in the hall. So we're going to ask for lots of different bits of information. We might be looking for lots of different bits of information. Um, when it comes to a consumer, we might be asking them, first of all, what they remember, but second of all, any different bits of information that they would have received. So this could include um, email messages, uh, anything, messages that have come to their phone or or um, phone messages. And this is the same for the for the advisor. This would be, we'd be looking into their notes. So if they've made notes of a phone call or if they have um, any kinds of evidence that they may have had contact with this person that might indicate that this person had would have been on aware they would have been on notice but it could also be um, bits of correspondence and and communications that weren't coming directly from the advisor they might be from product providers they might be things like annual statements quarterly statements um, updates various different bits of information I think as we Getting into more in more into uh, technological spaces and the ways that we communicate are becoming more and more um, uh, systematic. I think there's a lot more evidence that people we would expect a consumer to take into account when they're trying to figure out. Oh, maybe that's not quite right. And we w- we would put an obligation on the consumer to um, to have done a certain amount of work to understand their own. The, the, their own financial picture, if you like, and make sure that it, everything was as they expected. So we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't say to them, well, if you, you didn't open the letter, you didn't know about it, we'd say, well, you were sent the letter, you really mm. ought to have opened it. Sure. So there's not an expectation that uh, an advisor or product provider should sort of come to a, con- a consumer with a sort of a flashing lights and a big marching band saying, this has happened. Um, just you expect them to sort of be reason, uh, open the letter, for example, when they receive it, for example, or I open think, an email. Or... I think when we're, we're trying to measure or not whether or uh, whether or not a consumer should have known, um, then yes, we, we we're not trying to uh, trap advisors into have done have done everything they possibly could to make someone aware. Um, but what I would say to advisors is that we we do have a technical advice line um, available for businesses. So if they're dealing with a complaint and they're not quite sure if it is something that they do have to deal with because it might be outside of the of the time limits within within which they have to look at a complaint themselves um, they can always give our technical advice desk a, a call and they might be able to give them a steer as to the kinds of things we might be considering there might also be um, other bits of evidence so not necessarily with that consumer but more generic uh, documents that might help us get a better picture for their relationships with their consumers. Mm-hmm. And you're mentioning that as technology improves, you find it's harder for consumers to avoid the effect, the fact that they should have known. I, I, I'm not sure if I would put it that way, but I, I think it's it's inevitable that there is more evidence of our relationships with our mm-hmm. financial service providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that said, I suppose it means that we, we've got more clues and more evidence and more information uh, about how those relationships are negotiated. I suppose this comes back to one of the frequent complaints that you get from advisors is that um, the financial management service is ten- its defaults towards being on the side of the consumer. So this is something we get accused of by both sides, which I suppose Interesting. <laughs> it, it tends uh, tends to reinforce the idea that we are in fact impartial, um, because we, we we often get that accusation from both consumers and from businesses that we're on the side of the other party. Um, I would say that we we always do start with an impartial. Uh, standpoint and and from that point we'll try and gather as much evidence as we can we can't be seen to be partial Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I would dispute that notion 
um, uh, another question we've received is, um, does, should the F um, Financial Ombudsman Service uh, need to explain uh, the area of law in which they've uh, based their opinion or decision? So I, I've maybe in, um, indicated that we would look at something on uh, a fair and reasonable basis, which is to say that the question, any anyone at the Ombudsman who's investigating a complaint is, uh, the first question is, is this has this business acted fairly and reasonably? When we're considering whether or not that is the case, um, we consider a, a range of different bits of, uh, of black and white, if you like, which would include things like any regulations, any rules, any codes of conduct or industry standards or, um, and of course the law, we would never ignore the law. It's our starting point for any any kind of interaction between financial service providers and, and a consumer. Um, when it comes to uh, explaining the law, it's very rare that we will see a complaint that only depends on a point of law. Um, and with financial advice, a, a lot of the issues we see, and like the vast majority of the issues we see, are usually administrative or to do with customer service. Um, so in the administration of, of advice, that's that's not really connected to a specific law, but it will involve an enormous variety of different um, obligations on the advisor to, to do certain things. Um, so we would only refer explicitly to a law if we thought it was relevant on the facts of that individual case and that those individual circumstances. And then we have another obligation to make sure that our decisions are clear and that therefore the rest of the industry and consumers can see our approach and, and find that it's it, it's not something that's going to be ambiguous or difficult to understand. Mm. So very often our decisions and our views will be written in plain English. Um, so if we had to cite a law or refer to a law, what's likely to happen is, is that we wouldn't put that in legalese, um, we're going to put that in plain English and explain the relevance of it to the reasoning of why we think a business has behaved reasonably or, or otherwise. Mm. I guess it often comes down to just deciding whether something's fair or not, which is quite a hard thing to do sometimes. It does, yeah, but but if you think about it, the structure of of the way that the uh, a particular organisation or a business should behave is, is there are lots and lots and lots of things that, that they're supposed to do and have to do because of the regulations that they operate under, especially in financial services, which which is a you know quite a well regulated uh, market. So, if you think about that framework, that's what we start with. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And uh, our last question is about the uh, issue of the increased uh, financial ombudsman service compensation limit, which has been a bit of a controversial subject lately. Uh, the limit recently went up from 150,000 to 350,000 for complaints where the advice was given after the 1st of April this year. Advice which was given before that date is subject to, uh, it's 180, isn't it? No, so it's a, it's a, if they bring the complaint to okay, us. The, get the expert involved. <laughs> if they bring the complaint to us after the 1st of April, but it relates to something, an event that happened before the 1st of April 2019, mm. the limit is 160,000. Yeah. And then if it is an event or an issue that happened after the 1st of April and they bring it to us after the 1st of April, then it's the 350,000. Yeah. Much more eloquently explained than me. <laughs> uh, and, and, and this question asks, were PI insurers right to increase their premiums for defined benefit transfer advice uh, to reflect this increased limit? Because the number of 
professional indemnity insurers have now put up their premiums um, in response to this, presumably in the expectation that they're going to have to pay out a lot more money. We are, first and foremost, a dispute resolution service. So we aren't, um, we aren't there to comment on the relationship between the financial advice industry and the professional indemnity insurers. Um, we are... Uh, the limit uh, that you refer to was uh, set by the FCA after consultation, and I think they took on board. If you read their policy statement where they issued that, uh, it, it does it does say that they took into account um, the uh, feedback that they received from both the financial advice industry and from the professional indemnity insurance industry. Um, I'd say the the role that we play in in trying to reassure the uh, it, the PI insurers um, and obviously advisors as well is that of, of information as being as open and transparent about our approach and um, how we would deal with specific complaints uh, as we possibly can. So in in evidence of this, let's say the, the, the sorts of things we've done in the past were um, last year we had an ombudsman news issue where we opened up to the industry and had a conversation with various different people from the industry about uh, DB transfers and uh, some of the issues that were uh, in uh, that happening at the moment potentially, but we were also talking about some of the complaints we've seen in this area. Um, we also had some case studies which would uh, talk through the, the different questions we would ask and the approach that we take with those sorts of cases. Um, and we would hope that the industry would continue to engage with us. So we would do as much as we possibly can to, to explain and be open. And, and if we do have feedback that there is any uncertainty or there, there are challenges, we will take those on board and work with the industry. And are there specific processes in place? If you're going to award a consumer £349,000, is there a sort of specific process in place if you're going to award someone that amount of money? So there always have been processes in place, even when our limit was 150000 So when you have a, a, a fairly high level um, of compensation in question... Generally, you'll have uh, senior members of staff, and so we have a sort of structure around the investigators then, where they would have to run it by the the, the, the senior ombudsman and the ombudsman um, so that they've got uh, a second opinion. First of all, we want to make sure that the consumer is going to the right place, that they're getting that they're using the ombudsman and it is the right service for them. So occasionally there have been instances in the past where it might have been better suited for a court or another another dispute service. On top of that, there will be lots of uh, the usual uh, quality assurance that we have um, for making sure that we're making the right uh, decisions. Does the ombudsman service have an idea how often you think that complaints might sort of reach that level? We don't know at, the, at this point. We won't, won't really know, I think, until the, the jurisdiction is, is a bit more uh, well established and we can do some, some work to, to understand if there's anything that's happened. Because it's early days. We're only a few months on from April the 1st. Obviously, this is something that we would communicate with the industry when we find out. But if you, if you read the, the policy statement by the um, FCA, they maybe revised the amount that they uh, thought 
that uh, would the sorts of uh, you know the number of complaints that might be uh, be on the higher end of our award limit. And I think it's around five hundred, but you'll have to check the policy statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but they revised it down, so that was based on on their um, feedback from the industry. Those are all the questions I had. Thank you very much, Anna, for joining us for thank this you, uh, edition of the podcast. And thank you very much uh, for uh, listening in and tuning again next week for the next edition. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.